and I was uh, thinking about preaching on something concerning the church, um, something that would help me in preparation for uh, my time with Marcy this coming Sunday. And this week, or actually this past week and a half, I've been challenging my son and uh, David about memorizing scripture. It's been very helpful uh, study in our men's Bible study on uh, memorizing scripture. And so he he tells me, I, I said, you need to memorize Psalms 2. He says, I can't right now. I'm, I'm memorizing the book of James or James 1. And I said, okay, well, maybe I can catch up with you. I didn't know he meant the whole book of James, so I probably won't catch up with him, but at least that's his intent at some point. But he says, James 1, the first part of it. I said, well, I, you know, you could, why not? You know, why not memorize James 1? And by the way, does anyone have that memorized? James 1, 1 through 7, maybe something like that? Don't raise your hand. Um, it's a beautiful passage of Scripture, isn't it? I want to invite you to turn there with me. James 1. As I've been reading this week and trying to put it to memory, thinking about it, I have to admit, at first glance, not the introduction about James being a servant of God, you know, that's kind of, we we get that, but he he begins in verse number 2, and it's remarkable, almost my first reading of it and and thought of it is the most absurd thing that I think I've ever read. One of the most... Uh, counterintuitive teachings in all of the Bible. Now, not not the, not not singled out by itself, but it's got to be right up in the top ten, right? I mean, it, it 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 has to at least be pray for your enemies, and bless them, and curse not. When you get to James' instructions to the church here, and it is something that reminds us of the pressing reality in our day. It's unnatural to us. But it's also the most obvious thing that we face, and that is the reality of trials. Our experience, every one of us in this room, faces really something of the the nature and manner which James is dealing with here and instructing us in here. It's the very thing our children, children's, the, the kids, as they leave this room, all carefree, that's their future, what they will face and experience, and that is some measure of difficulty and trials in this life. And so we'll look at that, look at that, look at this together this morning. Just follow along as I read, just to get familiar with the passage, beginning in verse number one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersions, and the dispersion greetings. Well, that's good. That's pretty safe, isn't it? Notice verse number two. He begins, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the lord he is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways well that is god's inspired word isn't it 
Well, just a familiarity with James. We are not going through the whole book, but just to understand who he is and some of the context. Uh, He is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, We know the Bible tells us in John chapter number 7, during the ministry of Jesus' healing people and and raising people from the dead and, and all the things that he did, his miracles, casting out demons, his own brothers did not believe in him, John 7 tells us that. In fact, they kind of taunt him. Why don't you go up to Jerusalem and reveal yourself to the multitude? And John says they said this because they did not receive him as the Messiah. His own natural half-brother, James, did not receive him. But upon Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he not only appears to his apostles, but he appears to his brothers, James being one of them. Midway in the book of Acts, by the time you get to chapter number 15, James is a key member in the church of Jerusalem. Some refer to him as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He is the one who gives the final verdict over what's going on uh, between the Jew and Gentile relationships. It is James who gives the conclusion and the letter showing his sense of leadership in the church. And and so James is, is simply here writing to us, the, the half-brother Jesus, the pastor in Jerusalem, and he refers to himself in verse number one as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you had those connections going for you, wouldn't you just lead off with James, uh, the, the true blood brother of Jesus Christ? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you do that, true half-brother? Well, James reminds us, doesn't he? We belong to Christ and, and his kingdom, not by flesh and blood. It isn't through genealogy. It isn't through who you're related to or you're connected with. But we belong to him through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the new birth. It is that connection of being a servant of God and his faith in Jesus Christ that is significant. The same thing is true with us this morning. You may have a Christian family, you may have Christian parents, a Christian spouse, Christian children, but if you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, then he is not your hope. And his promises and his guidance and his, uh, those things are not yours. You must come to him by faith. Uh, you must be born again, as Jesus says. It is not by flesh and blood, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So James instructing this uh, this group uh, of people from the dispersion, he calls them the 12 tribes. This is some kind of the, the idea of the Jews that left Jerusalem during the time of persecution and uh, spread throughout the Roman Empire, maybe some of them going back to where they came from, from the day of Pentecost. And these were James's people. He loved them. He ministered them. And they were themselves facing a great deal of difficulty and, and problems. They were facing trials for their faith. Some have left their homes and, and, and no doubt dealing with all sorts of things. Later on, he speaks about being hauled off to court and all sorts of manner of things that's going through. And so these are people that, that are dealing with a need of being encouraged. And it's amazing that James begins his letter such as he does, isn't it? And this practical exhortation to them, and the whole book is practical in the sense of its instruction for us, he begins it with reality of trials. And it's one of those subjects that we don't like to talk about, do we? We're kind of superstitious. It's like someone tells you, don't pray for patience. How many of you ever heard someone say that to you? They give you instruction, don't pray for patience, you won't like the answer. 
So we think that we talk about trials and automatically, as soon as you walk out the door, you're going to be hit with a logging truck or a trial or something like that. So let's just change the subject, talk about Jesus being raised from the dead, go home. Maybe, maybe that'll be better for us. James doesn't skip over that reality. In fact, he just trying to reminds us that, that the experience that you have in this life, the presence of trials, that, that encounter with trials is normal. You're not abnormal. In fact, how you respond is supposed to be abnormal. You're supposed to be an odd duck at that point. But the experience of trials is part, of, part and parcel of this life and of the Christian experience. It just reminds us there is no secret pill to take to opt out of difficulties and hardships in this life. Do you know that? I mean, we want to avoid them. We don't talk about them. We ignore them. We do all the the things to try to prevent these things. And we ought to use a little bit of wisdom. Nobody likes difficulty. But there is no secret code. There's no prayer. There's no formula. There's no book you can get that will opt you out of that experience in this life. You will face difficulties of all kinds. I think we can all agree with that, can't we? And some might pretend and, and teach in our current culture that, well, if you're spiritual, if you're truly following God, you truly believe in God, then, then you get kind of a different sort of life. You sort of kind of bypass all of that stuff and, and you're on a higher plane of living. And I would just point you to the Apostle Paul, who we would say is one of the greatest spiritual leaders in the New Testament, apart from Jesus Christ. And yet he experienced some of the greatest and most difficult things that could be experienced. So what can we say? We either be more spiritual than Paul or he wasn't spiritual enough or, or something else is going on. Basically, that they, the experience of trials in this life are inevitable. Now, what is a trial? Well, Calvin notes it this way. We must doubtly take temptation or trials as including all adverse things and they are so-called because they test our obedience to God. Now, there is a sense where the Bible teaches, Peter talks about fiery trials, where there's a specific suffering or, or, or persecution for, for being a Christian, for naming Christ. And, and the Bible speaks about that quite often. Here it, it, here it seems to have a broader context than just simply persecution. Anything that tests our faith in God, anything that presses up against the reality or the knowledge of God that we have or, or pushes against our confidence in his character or our obligation to obedience to him. A trial is anything that, that presses against our confidence in his character or our obligation to obedience to him. Let me give you three observations very quickly concerning trials. And I am, I know, speaking the obvious, but sometimes the obvious must be said, at least for me, so you can bear with me while I speak it to myself. Implied here is that we face things in a variety, uh, in a variety manner or, or a variety of trials or difficulties. It's not a one-size-fits-all uh, the wording here, when he speaks of various trials in verse number two at the end, has the, the idea of multicolored. 
It means all sorts of shapes and sizes and kinds, all all different kinds of intensities and in ways it presses against us. There's sometimes we might face things that are related to our own health versus sickness or financial struggles or prosperity or children, relational difficulties that come into our life, spiritual grief, unexpected loss, and we could go on and on. James is lumping all of these together and, he, and he's going to instruct us in the sense of how do we navigate through them. But he wants us to understand so you don't say, well, I'm just kind of a little bit more messed up than this guy over here because I don't have the same experience he's going through. He's speaking to all of these things in their variety way or the variety uh, in which we face them. Sometimes we face trials in our life and isolation as an individual or as a family unit, as a couple. Uh, Some of you have that in your own life as you face that with your family members, whether it's grandchildren or children or whatever it may be. You deal with the weight of those things. Not not everyone understands or, or comes along with that, and so you face it. And other times we face trials in a more corporate setting. You get that right we we face them together as a church Uh, we have several churches around us at least two in particular come to mind in recent years the pastor died suddenly from covid now that's a a weight upon the spouse no doubt and and that immediate family but that's a weight that that whole church faced together a trial that that came into their life and of course we know some last briefly and some we carry for a long time. And some we may carry to our grave. We face things in this life, a variety of things in this life. The second observation is this, uh, that trials happen suddenly. Uh, in, in many cases, the language here in verse number two is that of, uh, of an unexpected encounter. Unexpected visitor. Uh, Some have likened it to the man who went on a journey and fell among thieves in Luke's account uh, as he was beaten along the way and and robbed. He didn't expect it. He wasn't planning for it. He wasn't wasn't anticipating this would happen. It, It just came upon him. He just met them along the way. And that's most of the times we face things like that in this life. I was driving down the road with Andrew, uh, Crom, you... Many of you remember him this summer, and we were driving down the road, and, and I was admiring the turkey on the side of the road, and I'm thinking, that, that turkey looks crazy. Next thing you know, that turkey's in my grill, and I was like, that turkey is crazy. I wasn't expecting a turkey in the grill, and it wasn't a grill that you eat. It was a grill of my truck, and somebody asked me, did you keep it and eat it? And I it in the ditch. I was too mad to eat it, but trials are like that, aren't they? You go on living your life, you trust God, you're, you're walking in obedience, there's no rhyme or reason sometimes, and, and all of a sudden, you meet a trial along the way. And the third thing I would say, and, and we know that from Job's experience as we see the book of Job unfolding, and there came a day in Job's life. The third thing we should note, so we don't uh, try to... to measure up on a spiritual level that is disconnected from reality, and that is trials are difficult. Now, I should say that again. Uh, They're not easy. 
Peter refers to them in the text we said in chapter number one, he calls them grievous trials. And later on in chapter number four, he calls them fiery trials. Uh, Over and over, we're reminded that, that we're not glossing over and saying something is easy that is hard and difficult. They are things that are difficult and hard and and things that we face in this life that we do not prefer. Now, all of this seems normal, and I think you would agree with me on this point, wouldn't you? And maybe if you have a disagreement, you can you can be like, I disagree with that point. Tell me later afterwards. We won't open up now for, for discussion, but you can tell me afterwards. I disagree with that. And you might be thinking to yourself, why in the world did I get up this morning to be told the obvious? Of what I already know. It's cold. I could be sitting in front of a fire. Well, James does something in the middle of this that is remarkable and difficult and and really just makes me scratch my head. Because most of the time we're looking how to avoid difficulty. How do we avoid trials? How do we get out of it? Where's the offering? Is that what you think when you go through this? When you go through something difficult? How do I get out of this? Right? Maybe I'm just me and that's just how I am. But uh, we want to avoid it. We want to get out of it. And, and, and yet what James does instructs us how to live in the midst of it, how to navigate in the middle of it. But not just how to navigate in the middle of it. It is counter to our inclinations. Notice verse number two again. The obvious thing that they're facing is trials of all sorts. He's writing for this particular reason. And begins in verse number two, count it all joy. What's good? We like joy. How many of you like joy this morning? I'm sure she's a nice person. We all like joy, don't we? We want to be happy. We want to be joyful. We want to be... We, well, fill us in. What are you talking about, James? Count it all joy. I'll, let's, let's add this up. Let's count joy. That's good. My brothers, now he's speaking to the family of God. It's those who are not just Jewish, but those who put their faith and trust in Christ. And so it's a word to us as well. And he says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And doesn't that blow your mind? Count it all joy. We'll do that. Because of the gospel. How many of you like that? should do that, shouldn't you? I mean, if you can't look at the gospel and be joyful because of that and rejoice in that, then, then your looker's wrong. Something's wrong with, with what's going on. But he doesn't say that, does he? It would be a lot easier, funner, more fun, whatever you say there. But anyway, he doesn't say that. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy or count it pure joy. I think the NIV says, the NLT renders it this way. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity of great joy. How many of you do that automatically? That's just my go-to. <laughs> Flat tire. Praise God, I got three tires with air in them. You know, I mean, that's just... <laughs> David had a flat tire this week. <laughs> I said, so you memorized the right passage of Scripture, I see. (laughs) Um, I should have asked him if he praised God for the other three that were still inflated. Maybe that's what we're to do. This is equivalent to a bumper sticker that says, smile, Jesus loves you. Right? 
You just kind of put your best foot forward, be optimistic, and then, and then move on with it. And then, of course, I know most of you are thinking, yeah, right, like that's ever going to happen. And then our first reflex, you have some difficulty in your life, and no doubt some of you do. Uh, maybe you're looking for direction in life. You feel the frustration, the way, the anxiety of what to do next or or the family, a family situation that's going on in your life. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's family members that you've prayed for for years. Maybe it's physical health and worry and, and fear uh, that come with that. And, and, and all that pressing at us and your, your first response is it's what James is saying. And I would have to say, naturally speaking, no. There's the last thing we want to do is count it all joy. I think James is bringing this to their mind because they needed to be told that. Just like you and I need to be told in the midst of our difficulties and sufferings. Brothers, count it joy. Sisters, count it joy. Spurgeon has famously said... I have learned to kiss the waves that throws me up against the rock of ages. Actually, our song, one of the songs we sang, a whole verse in that was off of that phrase. Did you get that and notice that as we were singing? Learning to kiss the waves that throws me up against the rock of ages is not a natural response. It's not our first immediate response. And it's not saying, and I I think that's where we have to to do some ministry to our own hearts in the middle of difficulties. It's not saying trials in themselves are awesome or or great or, 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 or spectacular. There has to be a reason we can count it all joy. Otherwise, we're just being silly and, and, and ignoring the reality that life is hard sometimes. God gives us more of a substance to root our joy in instead of, oh, great, hit me again. Thank you. May I have another one, please? And he roots that in God himself. Can it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's several things that, that... follow through this perspective which James is calling us to have when it comes to trials in this life and the first is the reminder that in these trials through these trials God is at work in you God is at work and and sometimes we think the opposite that when we face difficulties right God's on vacation I was on vacation God's on vacation that's why bad stuff happened He fell asleep during the watch of the night. And so this thing snuck over the wall and met me head on. And and that's not true at all. We we come to the premise that the, the foundational reality that in the midst of difficulty, God is at work. God is sovereign. He, he doesn't take a vacation. He, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He that keeps us is vigilant on task, and these are the tools by which he works in your life. The very difficulties are the things which are wielded in his hand to do his greatest work in you. Do you believe that? You'll never count it joy or see the full effect or respond in a way that honors God and for your own benefit without understanding that, that these are the very things that God is using to get his work done. 
just as a carpenter would use a hammer and a tape measure and a saw. So God uses these difficulties in our lives to bring about his desired end. And isn't that the way it is with our own children? Do you spare your own children from every kind of difficulty and hardship? David had a flat tire. I didn't get on a, on a train and go down to train, whatever, and go down there and change the tire for him. I told him, get the spare tire and put it on. You have to figure it out. And it's through these things and through these difficult, uh, difficulties that we grow and are matured. And, and I go back to that reality that we need to keep in mind, and that is God is at work in you through them. The second thing, I think, if we are to change our perspective, not only is it God at work through them in you, God has your good in mind. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, when you face the sense of unsurety and you fear the next step or the unknown, or you bear the weight of loneliness or the guilt and grief of some something going on in your world as all of this comes at you as relationships become tense or whatever it may be as we face these things what i'm trying to tell you is god did not change he was not good before this and now mean and evil we need to be told that don't we he wasn't kind and blessing you one moment, now spitting and cursing at you the next moment. What I'm trying to say is that God is at work in you always with your good in mind. You say, it's hard. It's difficult. Well, I know that. I've experienced that. And yet in the middle of that, I am to tell my own heart, my emotions, my mind, and every other thing that seems to be running in chaos that God means this for good. Romans 8, turn with me. And I know some of you probably ought to see a little bit more than me just saying God means it for good. And I don't blame you. Romans 8. And this is rooted in the gospel itself, isn't it? This foundational promise that not only is it God working you through the trials, but God has good in mind Bringing these into your life, our good and his glory. Romans 8 and 28, the most famous place we could go. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? For evil? So God's intended purpose through this is to to cause evil in your life? To crush you? Well, maybe there's a little bit of crushing that goes on, though. To hurt you, there is a measure of pain in the midst of it all. But is his purpose for those things or for our good? That those things might work for our good. It's what he says here, for good. And you could take that about any translation. It means the same thing. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's a promise. Those who belong to him. Now there's that connection that relationship the promise that if you are his the trials that he brings in your life or the tools that he uses to wield to do his work in you and in the meantime his ambition his aim his purpose is for your good for your good 
That's what he's saying in Romans 8 and 28. Notice he, he, he'll go on and say that. I hate to skip 29 and 30. I almost like to plant there and just preach that. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Think about what he's saying there. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When uh, we face trials in our life and all the difficulties, he means them for our good. The very fact that he gave his son to down a cross to redeem you and to save you, to bring you into the family of God should display for us over and over the nature of God's heart towards you. Shouldn't it? For God so what? Love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He demonstrated his love in that fashion. All I'm trying to say to you and to my own heart in the midst of trials, circumstances we go through, is that the character of God does not change. He means it for good. He has good in mind. Go back to James with me. There's several things that are going on. Uh, in the middle of this, uh, as he means these for good, one, he is revealing his own faithfulness and how he is consistently who he is no matter what we face. Praise God for that. You ever went and talked to somebody and one minute they're kind of happy and the next time you talk to them, they're like, it's like a train wreck. Something, something happened to them for sure. They like you one minute and they don't like you. It's like high school, you know, <laughs> the middle school and <laughs> study hall. And this little girl, she sent me a note, want to go out. And I was like, yeah, I don't know where we're going. I don't have a car. That's what you do in middle school. By the end of the class, she broke up with me. I was like, well, there you go. You know, they, <laughs> that's how life works, guys. <laughs> I just want you to <laughs> God isn't like that consistent he's faithful in the middle of our trials doesn't he doesn't his faithfulness uh, isn't it broadcasted in bold glaring ways but not only is he revealing his own faithfulness he's also revealing our faith and faithlessness is that as we face these difficulties like really again in the middle of all that Uh, Peter says it's our faith that's being tried so that the dross, the unbelief, the self, the the sinful passions, our inclinations and and all of our false trusts and idolatries may rise to the top. And as they're exposed to us, we may repent of those and and, and trust Christ and be cleansed of those. And and isn't that what God is doing in our trials? And do you trust that he is wise? knowing exactly what it takes to make of you what he wants you to be. Like the old kid's song I've questioned our church on Wednesday night. If they've ever heard, he's still working on me. And through these trials and difficulties that we face as what they are, they bring us and draw us to dependence on God. How often, beloved, how often, church, have you drawn close to God at the at the end of your rope? And what a blessing it is to be reminded of the end of self and your self-reliance and, and self-confidence, to be reminded of His goodness and His power and His strength and His help. And 
And God is just doing all of that through these things that we face. Uh, James likens it this way. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance or endurance. He's saying it, it is these things that you go through continually, all the variety of ways that God brings these into your life so that you may be steadfast. So you don't lose your head. There's a calmness. There's a perseverance. There's a continuance, a stick to itness in the midst of all of your circumstances that you display an unshakable faith because your faith has been tried and tested and purified continually over and over. Wouldn't you like to just take one class and get it over with, though? Wouldn't that be great? Sign me up. Let's do a six-week program. I want the give me the steadfastness, endurance. I'll take perfection and completion, need nothing, and then let's, let's just get on with life. But it isn't that way, is it? Continually throughout this life, in the midst of our sanctification, God is bringing these things to mature us, to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And basically by that, in verse number four, he just simply means that you may grow up and no longer be a child tossed to and fro and doubt and disbelief. Doesn't that remind you of the, the uh, a verse in that famous hymn, How Firm a Foundation, where he says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God means this? good means this for good you believe is at work in your life even in the midst of difficulties even when you don't know how we have given enough of the promises of God and assurance in his word that these things are true he doesn't give us all the details does he but he does give us enough to know we can we can trust him we can stand fast in him so how do we count it all joy that's the why we're to count it all joy and maybe a little quicker on this. How do we count it all joy? How do we get that perspective? It's not natural inclinations. It's against my flesh. It's against my feelings. I, I'm a, I'm, I even have emotions. It's against my emotions. Uh, some surprising sometimes we admit that we have emotions, but how do we do that? He mentions that in verse number five, doesn't he? Before we look at that, let me notice, let me remind you what he says in verse number three. How do we do that? We go back to the things that we know, the things I've been reminding you of, the lessons that flood throughout Scripture, the, uh, the illustrations, the instructions to the saints, the promises God has given to us. It, it isn't always something new that we need, is it? We don't always need to be brought back and, and declared something or, or demonstrated something we don't know. Most of the time, our greatest need is to be reminded of those things that we have heard, those things that we do know, isn't it? Don't we need to be reminded that God is good, that God is faithful, that God has got this, that God is in control? Don't we need to move from chaos and doubt and murmuring to trusting in the sovereignty of God and that He is wise and works everything out according to His own counsel and will? 
Again, we may not have all the pieces to put into place, but we have that settled assurance that he does. We go back to those we know. We can rejoice in the ongoing work of God in our lives and those things that conform us to the image of Christ. They do not rob our joy. In fact, they are of such benefit to us. And I think this is what James is saying, that these trials in our life are of such benefit to us that we can rejoice in their visitation. Isn't that radically different? To think about trials in this life to be of such benefit that we can rejoice in their visitation that you would not be who you are without them. The progress of God's grace and sanctification in your life would not be where it is without God using the tools in which he used to bring it about. Now, that's not saying, I want to go through that again. Someone asked me, would you rejoin the military? I joined it when I was 17, wanted out of the house, be my own man. That's the place you go, right? The military where they own you for four years and you never get to do what you want to do. And I won't go into detail, just hopefully by way of illustration, there are so many scars and regrets and sorrows in that four-year journey in my life that I would not even share half of it. And they said, would you do it over again? No, but I'm glad I don't have that choice. Because God in his sovereign grace and his redeeming purpose in my life used those things and is using those things for good according to his will and purpose what i'm saying is that to such benefit are the trials in our lives at the hands of our heavenly father our good heavenly father that we can rejoice in their visitation on one hand we have the grieving and you have the sorrow and discomfort and you have need and pain and heartache. And I'm not saying those things are not real or true. And we don't feel them in deep ways in the real experiences of our lives. But on the other hand, at the same time, God has promised in the midst of that, there is peace to be had that passes all understanding. In the midst of that, there's joy which no one can take from you. That's Christ's own joy. In the middle of that, there's the presence of God. There's the worship of God. There's the knowing God in a way in which you and I would never know him. And those, both of those at the very same time. And James is looking at his people. Don't be discouraged and run, run away. Count it joy knowing that God is maturing you, growing you up to be more like Jesus. But not only is it bringing to mind those things that we know and very quickly... Notice the provisions, because this is not a natural work. It's not something we do ourselves. Notice verse number five. If any of you lack wisdom, is anyone here there? Can we be honest? (laughs) You don't have to fill in wisdom for what? You know, just wisdom in general. Anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given you we could but i'm not going to rewrite write the bible so i won't uh, emphasize it too much we could say when you lack wisdom because it's true of all of us it's come to a place at the end of our own our own understanding 
What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is, as stated by one scholar, the means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. If you lack the the ability to discern and how to carry out the will of God, you need wisdom. And if you lack that, James is saying, ask God. Isn't that a great promise? It is the principle by which we we take the promises and the word, the instruction of Scripture, and we we apply it to our day-in, day-out lives. And he's saying uh, as we face these trials, and we could say that in general, as we lack wisdom, ask God for it. Who has all wisdom. In fact, it's a good place to start in in the sense of oftentimes I've thought of this verse as I've God called me to do what he's called me to do and and think, why well, I need help knowing what I don't know. And so you come before God and say, God, help me. Give me the wisdom to navigate this circumstance. Give me the wisdom in this situation. Here specifically, he is bringing the point to how to count trials joy. Isn't that the context? How do you live steadfastly in the midst of trials? How do you count it joy? How do you have this kind of this fixed faith in God that his goodness is, is towards us and that he is actively working in my life when it doesn't feel like it and everything is telling me something else? How do we live like that? And he says, if you lack the ability to do that, ask God. But look at the promise. If you lack it, Okay, let's just all be let's let's just all be a little bit kind of let's admit whether you do or not. Let's just all be on the same page. We all like wisdom, right? Let's just say we're we're here. We're it's a Sunday morning, um, and and we're all in some place in our life, and we're like God. We don't know what to do. That's a good place to admit that, isn't it? We don't know what to do, God. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how to deal with this. We don't know how to see your hand in this. We don't know how to, you know, we, we don't, how does all this work? And, and James is saying, well, that's a good place to be. But one of our greatest problems in life is to, to coming to that reality that we need help. Isn't it? We're so confident in our abilities or so ashamed to call out for help or ask anybody for help and even ask God for help. Some, someone once said that, that you know, you, it's me again, Lord. You know, and, and you just hate saying that prayer because it feels like it's a prayer you pray all the time. How many of you are like that, by the way? And James says, well, you're in a good place if you lack wisdom. You know you lack it. That's a good place to start. Then, well, here's the next thing you're to do. The next step you're to ask God. If you lack it, ask God. He's got all kinds of it. Well, that's a good direction. Reminds us of Jesus' words, doesn't Matthew 7? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. But notice how he he words it here in verse number 5. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Isn't that an amazing promise? You mean to tell me that we're all here this morning and we lack wisdom. We agreed to that. You just have to kind of work along with me here. We all agreed that we lacked wisdom. James has asked God. He's got all kinds of it. All wisdom. And he said... And he's not stingy with it. In fact, if you asked him, he will give it to you 
He, he's intending, his purpose is to give it to you. The, the idea generously here could mean with sincerity or singleness of mind. He has a single purpose to give you what you need to endure this circumstance in your life. He's not putting you through stuff so you can be like, let's see how far you can go on your own. No, his intent is to give you everything you need to endure, to stand steadfast, and to walk in obedience and fellowship with him. You lack wisdom, he gives it to you without rebuke. Well, you know what it was the last time you asked for wisdom, and I gave it to you, and look how you used it. And you used it all up. And it's only been two days. I mean, my goodness, how much stuff can happen in two days? And here you're back again wanting more of my wisdom. Does God treat you like that? In fact, if you find a rebuke from the hand of God or from the mouth of God, isn't it because of our failure to ask? And not because we ask too much. In fact, he says that, James says it. You can turn over just so you don't think I'm making stuff up. Chapter number 4. What causes quarrels, verse number 1, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's, a, that's an interesting place to be as a church. You desire, do not have. You murder, you covet, you cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you what? They're trying to fix the problems according to their own flesh. Instead of pursuing God and God's ways and God's will and God's provision, they're doing it on them. They're doing it on their own. It's a bitterness, anger, violence towards one another. He says, "You don't have because you do not ask." Now, later on, he says, "You ask and and you don't get because you ask and miss." In other words, you're you're asking out of your own fleshly desires. But but don't miss that first part. You don't have because you don't ask. James is saying, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives to you generously without reproach and it will be given to him. How do I count it all joy? Pray and seek the face of God. How do I navigate this trial in my life? Well, you navigate it by bringing your mind back to those realities of who God is and what God is doing. The promises he's given to you and you, 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 you seek the face of God for his help. Notice the caveat, and we'll close with this. Verse number six. What a, what a promise. What if I was to say that if you lack, if you lack $100, and you've got to have $100, Bill, Mike has 10 $100 bills, and if you ask him, he'll give you one of his 10. And then you go on, you leave here, and then you keep talking about how much you lack that $100 bill. When I already told you, Mike has 10 $100 bills, and he'll give you $100 bills if you ask him, but you're not going to ask him. Sometimes I think we're that way with our problems with God, aren't we? I'm not saying he's got 10 $100 bills. I don't know what he's got, but you get it, don't you? In the middle of your troubles, have you sincerely, have you sought the face of God for help? Isn't it so easy to gossip and murmur and talk to everybody else before we even talk to God? And James said, that is, that's kind of backwards, isn't it? But if you're going to pray, believe that you will receive what you've asked for. Let him ask in faith with not doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven, tossed by the wind. 
That person will not receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And this is not saying you name it, you claim it. What it is saying is that God has promised it. You can come to him, ask for it, and expect it. Isn't that what he's saying? We submit everything to the will of God. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And and those things God has promised that that in the midst of our trials and we need wisdom, how to navigate them, how to to work through them, how to count it joy, how to hold on to Christ and, and rejoice in the midst of all that. God has promised, I'll give it to you if you ask. Why not go asking, expecting to receive it? That's what James is saying, isn't it? How do you do that? Well, you... Come back to putting your trust and faith in God as our Heavenly Father. And if you struggle with that, go back to the gospel. Isn't that, that the, isn't that the heart of it all? That if he gave Jesus to redeem you, how will he not with him also give you all things freely? Romans 8 that we read earlier. So I don't know what's going on in your life. I know the reality of our lives is we face trials of all sorts and all kinds. And in the midst of them, I want to remind you, God is faithful and God is at work and you can trust him and you can rejoice because he is good and has your good in mind. So remind yourself of that. Seek his face and expect his answer. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the the time even this week thinking on these words and trying to commit them to to memory and, and just several reminders and wondering how in the world could we count it all in joy and then we look to you. Father, keep us looking up so that we may be encouraged and strengthened for the day of battle in Jesus' name. Amen.